open your Bibles now to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 1, and we'll study verses 16 and 17. Actually, not tonight, but over the next few Wednesday nights. Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. And then be prepared to turn to Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 4. But first, Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. This is the end of the introduction. Actually, this is a very, very important hinge section. In other words, the, the, these two verses, which contain the purpose for the entire epistle, uh, everything that happens later on in the book is going to hinge on the interpretation of these two verses. So that's why we're going to need to spend just a little bit of time on Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. Martin Luther's parents wanted him to study law. He surely had the mind for it, and there's every indication that he also possessed the disposition to be successful in that profession. But after a traumatic episode in which he was almost struck by lightning, he decided to go into the priesthood. And after receiving his doctorate in theology in 1512, Martin Luther took a position as professor of theology at Wittenberg University. And then from 1514 on, Luther was not only a theology professor, but he also served as the parish priest at City Church in Wittenberg. And it was while he was fulfilling these pastoral responsibilities that, that Luther observed that many people in Wittenberg were not coming to confession anymore. And if you have any Catholic background, you know what that is. Uh, instead of coming to confession, they were going to nearby towns to buy indulgences. Uh, an indulgence was basically a contribution to the church in exchange for the Pope granting entrance into heaven for either the giver or for one of the giver's loved ones. So the idea that the townspeople began to have was, why go to confession when you can just buy your way into heaven? As a man of integrity, Luther was greatly troubled by that because he knew that the concept of indulgences was not scriptural and that the Pope had instituted this whole process of buying indulgences to help pay for some massive building projects that were going on in the city of Rome at the time. By his own testimony, at the time Martin Luther became concerned with the indulgences, he was unsaved, by his own testimony, even though he held the position of both a professor and a priest. But in the spring of 1515, just one year after he took the position of priest, in the spring of 1515, he was given the assignment to teach the book of Romans, which he did from Easter of 1515 until September of 1516, twice a week, Mondays and Fridays at six o'clock in the morning. In preparing this study of the book of Romans, Luther began to appreciate the centrality of the Christian doctrine of justification by faith. He says this, I'm going to quote him. He says, I greatly long to understand Paul's epistle to the Romans, and nothing stood in the way but the one expression, the righteousness of God. Because I took it to mean that righteousness whereby God is righteous and deals righteously in punishing the unrighteous. Night and day I pondered until I grasped the truth that the righteousness of God is that righteousness whereby through his grace and sheer mercy he justifies us by faith. Thereupon I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through the open doors into paradise. The whole scripture took on a new meaning. And whereas before the righteousness of God that filled me with hate, now it became to me inexpressibly sweet in greater love. Now the passage 
that caused Martin Luther to say that. The passage that caused Martin Luther to go from being an unbeliever, albeit an unbeliever that was a theology professor and a priest, but the passage that caused him to go from an unsaved position to one of salvation is the passage that we'll begin to study tonight. Now, I must admit, at first glance, I am surprised that God chose this passage to be the catalyst for the Protestant Reformation. I'd have thought he might have chosen John 3.16 or Acts 16.31 or Titus 3.5 or Ephesians 2.8.9 or even some of the passages that come up later in Romans. But it's Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17 that God used to turn the world on its ear. Now listen to the passage. It says, Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. At first glance, it doesn't make a lot of sense how Martin Luther would have seen this and said, wow, salvation is not by works. We're justified by faith alone. And now the phrase that really st stuck with him, the phrase that really opened his eyes was the last phrase in verse 17. But the righteous man shall live by faith. So at first glance, that doesn't appear to be a salvation phrase at all. Now I mean a salvation phrase when it comes to I'm being saved from eternal damnation into eternal life. At first glance, it doesn't appear that way. At least it doesn't to me. Perhaps it does to you. It would appear to be more of a sanctification phrase, a maturity phrase, meaning something like, those who are justified before God will lead faithful lives or will live faithful lives. Do you see that? The righteous man shall live by faith. It would, it would look to me more like whoever is righteous will live a faithful life. You know, in the, at least in the English language, most people would take it that way. That's why a lot of people look at this and say, how in the world could Martin Luther come up with that? Maybe he was wrong. Was the entire Reformation based on an improper interpretation of this? That would be God's sense of humor to do that. But that's not what happened. Um, that's not how the Reformers saw the meaning of this passage. And the reason they didn't is because once you take a closer look at the Greek text, the word order is a little bit different. So when we look at it in English, it doesn't make a lot of sense to us. And it didn't to me the first dozen times I read it because I never bothered to go back and see what it said in the Greek language. But to Martin Luther, who was a real stickler on using the original languages in his study, to Martin Luther, he wasn't reading German or even Latin. He was reading uh, the original Greek text or a copy of the original Greek text. And I've written it on the board. I know you don't read Greek, but I'm gonna, I want you to see what this looked like so you can see um, so I can help validate the, the translation that, is, that Luther came up with, that all the Reformers came up with, and that every New Testament commentary that I have, and that's all 13 or 14 of them on Romans, came up with, although none of the translations have chosen to do this. But let me show you a little bit about what this looks like. Literally, th these are words. I'm just going to tell you what they mean. This, this means, this is a particle that means and, duh, D-E. But it says, the righteous one, ho dikaios, that means the righteous one, through faith, or by means of faith, will live. That's a little different than, than what is implied by the English trans, most English translations. It says, but the righteous man shall live by faith. 
Most English translations do it this way. But the righteous one will live by means of faith. Now, Greek word order can be different from English. It's not as, as uh, stilted as English might be. However, Greek word order is not totally irrelevant. And what we have here is a misunderstanding of what the subject is and what the verb is in the sentence. And this is one of those places where grammar really does matter. It'll help us to understand the Reformation. And uh, don't think the Reformation is uh, um, insignificant. The, Re the Reformation literally did turn the world on its ear. And that's why, uh, that's why this is worth looking into. It's how in the world did Luther see something in this passage that we can't see in English? Well, it's because you can see it in Greek fairly easily. In the Greek language, the whole subject is the one who is justified by means of faith will live. So that's how this should be understood. The one who is justified by faith will live. Now we're going to have to talk about later on as we go, what does this will live mean? And Luther saw it as meaning will live eternally. So that's the way it should be understood. The one who is justified by faith will live. Now understand, I'm not committing heresy by changing the English understanding of this. This is directly what the uh, what the Greek tells us. This verse, which is Habakkuk 2.4, actually, is quoted three times in the New Testament, each time in at least a semi-salvation context or sense. What Paul's talking about here is definitely a salvation sense. He's talking about ju the justification that saves us. The justification that saves us is ekpistuos, from faith. That's what this word right here means. And that's part of the subject. This is found in Romans 1.17, Galatians 3.11, and Hebrews 10.28. Now just a word about uh, interpretation. Because in a moment we're going to go to the book of Habakkuk and see the first time that this phrase was used. Paul is quoting a phrase from the Old Testament in order to make his point that salvation is not from works. It's from faith. That's what this could also mean, either from faith or by means of faith. This could be one of the rare cases where uh, ek with a genitive means means and not just a, a source. Or, or a, uh, yeah, source is good enough. Now, my understanding of the technical concept of validity and interpretation is something that I feel a great indebtedness uh, to a man named Elliot Johnson, who's a professor at Bible of Bible Exposition at Dallas Theological Seminary, um, most Well, some of you have met Dr. Johnson. He's spoken here on a couple different occasions. But I wanted to make that clear at this point, because uh, uh, Dr. Johnson spent a great deal of time with me in helping to me to appreciate the science of biblical interpretation. And as a result, I'm very happy to acknowledge him as, as the one that God used in a human way to prepare me to teach you about this passage. I couldn't hardly teach you this passage without at least acknowledging the work that he did with me over a long time and over many hours of trying to get some things through my thick skull and how we validate something through the scriptures. And so that's uh, what I teach you tonight and in the next couple nights I do want to at least give uh, some uh, credit to him because he spent a lot of time with me that he didn't have to spend. He's that kind of guy. Now, this is the point. If Paul and the writer of the Hebrews. Remember the three passages, and if you're writing stuff down, this is something to write down. Romans 1.17, Galatians 3.11, and Hebrews 10.28. These are the three times that Habakkuk 2.4 is quoted in the New Testament. It's cited, if you will, in the New Testament as validation 
for something that those three writers, or two writers, Paul in Galatians and Romans and whoever wrote Hebrews, from a human perspective. It's cited to validate the point they were making. This is true because remember what Habakkuk said. I guess in the law sometimes when, when justices look to validate a ruling that they're making, they'll say, this is why we ruled, because the Constitution says this. Over here it says this. This is why I'm applying that, that this way now. So when a New Testament writer used something from the Old Testament, they had to maintain, in my opinion, the same sense of meaning, the same sense of the author's original intended meaning. And that's the same way that I understand that good jurists uh, do law even today. They go back and try to understand what the Constitution originally meant, and then they rule on law today based upon that. Well, if you took that same principle and looked at the Old Testament, the Old Testament writer had a meaning. In Habakkuk, we'll see what the meaning of this passage was. And Paul, and whoever wrote Hebrews, at least assumed the general sense of that meaning when they quoted that in the New Testament. I know this is a bit technical, but it will really help you to understand this. And this is so critical um, in, t in our understanding of the rest of the entire epistle that if we mess up on this, then we're going to have faulty interpretation the rest of the way down the road. I think I might have told you one of the reasons it took me so long to, to get ready to teach you Romans. I've been wanting to do it for two or three years, but I just really didn't feel ready. I mean, I hate to admit that to you, but I didn't feel ready because if you make a mistake in the first part of the book of Romans, you're going to pay for it later on. And then everything that you taught is subject to uh, some, some legitimate criticism. This is the first place in the epistle where we've got to make sure we have it right. Otherwise, the next several chapters will not make any sense at all. So bear with me as we take a look at this. If, if Paul and the writer of Hebrews, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, chose to use this particular verse in these three crucial passages, it will be helpful for us to then have an understanding of what Habakkuk was writing about. So if we're, full, if we're to fully understand Romans 1, 16, and 17, we need to understand Habakkuk 2, 4. Because, again, the New Testament writer must have maintained the same sense of meaning in the Old Testament that the writer intended. In other words, that Habakkuk intended. So for that, for that reason, let's now turn over to the book of Habakkuk. The book of Habakkuk is in the, of course, is in the Old Testament. And I see some of you are already there, and that's fantastic. Let's look at the book of Habakkuk. If you need to look in the index, don't, don't feel bad about that. Now, all we know for sure about Habakkuk was that he was a prophet who lived in Judah, sometimes called the Southern Kingdom, during the pre-exilic period of Israel's history, in other words, prior to 586 B.C. If you remember your Old Testament history, the, after Solomon, the kingdom split off into the northern and southern kingdoms. The northern kingdom was never good. There's never hardly and there's never anything really good said about the northern kingdom. All the kings were bad. From day one, they were all bad, and it didn't take long for that kingdom to fall. So in 722 B.C., the Assyrians came down, and they conquered the northern kingdom. They did it very brutally, and you would think that those in the southern kingdom would have got the message that, listen, if we don't shape up, that same thing could happen to us. We know from history that they were boneheaded and they didn't shape up, so the same thing did happen to them just with another nation, the Babylonians. Now, this book is written shortly before the Babylonians come in to conquer the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom's already gone because of their degeneracy. The prophets are warning the southern kingdom, you've got to shape up. Don't do like the northern kingdom did, or we're going down too. We're going down too. 
We're going down too. Habakkuk was one of those. Jeremiah was, of course, another. Habakkuk and Jeremiah ministered about the same time. But they don't pay any attention. The, the circumstances in Judah were really, really immoral at the time. If you want to draw a parallel to the United States, feel free. Because uh, the thing that Habakkuk is going to do, you'll see in just a minute, is something that I've heard some of you do too. And I've thought it myself. And that is, Lord, why are you letting this go on? I can't believe that you're allowing these things to take place right underneath your nose. So that's the situation that we're dealing with. It happened sometime prior to 586 B.C., probably closer to, to uh, around 600 uh, B.C. Uh, or 605 B.C. Now, the people that Habakkuk ministered to were Judeans who apparently lived under the reign of King Jehoiakim. And during his reign, the Israelites were looking for help in all the wrong directions. Storm clouds were brewing in the southern kingdom. And people could read the writing on the wall, and they understood that they needed some help. So instead of going to God and repenting and changing the way that they were behaving, so that God would rescue his own people, remember this was, these were still God's people. Instead of doing it the spiritual way, they decided to do it the military way. And they saw that Assyria uh, was still very powerful. They, they weren't, weren't really sure that the Babylonians would come over yet, but they knew that was a lurking presence. And they said, well, then who can we go to for help? <clears throat> the only person or the only people that they could possibly go to for help would have been the Egyptians. So instead of going to God, they went to Egypt. And woe is the one that goes down to Egypt for help. That's what they did. So they went to Egypt in view of the growing Babylonian threat and also the present Assyrian threat. So this is also the burden of Jeremiah. If you read through that book, too, he's upset about this same thing. <clears throat> now, what also disturbed him, though, was not just the, uh, the military problems that were on the way. It was really bothering Habakkuk that the nation was going so far down morally. And we can appreciate that. I mean, we can see it. We can observe that. And... Uh, the immorality in the United States is not just behind closed doors anymore. It's just right out there in your face. It's, in the, it's open. It's in the public, and we're disgusted by that. Well, just transfer yourself back then, and you probably would be right at home. Uh, and that's what Habakkuk was upset about, too. Now, what also disturbed him, though, was that the sovereign Lord was not responding to Habakkuk's evil generation and the internal injustices so Habakkuk's saying, why are you allowing this to go on, Lord? Why don't you come down hard on the people of Judah uh, for these sins that they're committing? Now, so what he does is he brings that up to the Lord in prayer, and the Lord replies that, no, I am working. You know, Habakkuk says, how long is this going on? Why are you letting this happen? And the Lord's going to answer back, well, I'm, I'm working here. I see what's going on. And he's going to say, I'm raising up a nation that's going to punish. No, no problem. And the nation he's going to raise up is the Babylonian Empire, one of the two that they were scared of. He said, no, I'm going to use one of the real evil people to come over and wipe you out. Which raised another problem for Habakkuk. Uh, that's not what he was looking for. And he also takes this problem to the Lord in prayer, and that basically it's how can you use a, wicked, a nation that's more wicked to us to punish us for our wickedness? How can you do that? And God's going to explain to him that he's going to eventually, eventually punish the Babylonians too, but in the meantime, I'm going to use them to wipe you out. I'm sovereign, and... And this is the way it's going to be. And then the final chapter of the book is actually a hymn that 
Habakkuk writes in order to praise God for being sovereign. That's the Habakkuk in, in a nutshell. But the purpose of the book then was to vindicate the justice of God so God's people would have hope and encouragement. Now, look at the very first part of this, and let's read the first four verses. The oracle of Habakkuk, the prophet... By the way, we won't be able to read, uh, go over every verse. I'm going to give you some summaries of this. But um, in the first four verses, we have the dialogue between Habakkuk and God. Um, or actually, the first, uh, first quite a few verses. The oracle which Habakkuk, the prophet, saw. How long, O Lord, will I call for help, and you will not hear? I dare say Habakkuk's not the only one that's ever prayed that prayer. There's, there's been plenty of people... <laughs> I'm probably one of them that says, Lord, I've, I've prayed about this for like a year now. Do I need to keep praying? Or are you, are you telling me no? Do I need to, do I need to stop? Uh, what's going on? How come you're not answering this? You know? And you don't have to, and we're not saying it in an arrogant or prideful way, you know, just a very humble way. How long, oh Lord, are you going to let this go on? And, and in this case, remember Habakkuk's praying about moral degeneracy that's taking place in Judah. How long, O oh Lord, will I call for help and you won't hear me? meaning you won't answer. He hears it, but that's the Hebrew way of talking about answering it. I cry out to thee, violence! Yet you don't save or you don't deliver. Why do you make me see iniquity and cause me to look on wickedness? Yes, destruction and violence are before me. Strife exists and contention arises. Therefore the law is ignored and justice is never upheld. For the wicked surround the righteous. Therefore... Justice comes out perverted. So Habakkuk asks God how long will he allow the wicked conditions to continue before he intervenes. That's what's going on here. The message of this, these first four verses is that Habakkuk recognizes God is righteous and will, or at least should, judge the unrighteous behavior of his people. That's the way it ought to work, right? God blesses righteousness and he curses wickedness. God blesses obedience and he curses disobedience. Isn't that what the Mosaic Law said? Was Habakkuk wrong for praying that? Say no. Habakkuk's not condemned for praying that. Habakkuk's applying theology. He said, the way I'm looking at it, it doesn't look to me like what Moses said in Deuteronomy is really working. It looks to me like the wicked are being wicked and getting away with it. They're rubbing our nose in it. Those of us who are attempting to be righteous. So why don't you vindicate us? Why are you silent? Lord, silent to our prayers. That's what's happening in the first four verses. Now God speaks. This is part of the dialogue. And you should see some quotation marks in your Bible to, to mark off that this is another person speaking now, and it's God that's speaking. Look among the nations and observe. Be astonished. Wonder. Because I'm doing something in your days you will not believe if you were told. You're not going to believe it if I told you what I'm fixing to do. But I'm fixing to tell you. In verse 6, For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that fierce and impetuous people who march throughout the earth to seize dwelling places which are not theirs. And then he goes through and talks about the first uh, 5-11, how bad the Chaldeans are. Now, Habakkuk doesn't need to hear that. He already knew how bad the Chaldeans are. Let me, let me put it to you this way. This would be like if pretend that we are God's people. Now, now technically we're not. The Jews are God's people. Uh, there's no... Uh, there's no indication at all that the United States is now, ever was, or ever will be God's people. That's a special designation for the nation of Israel. But just pretend that we were in that status. 
And we were in the moral degeneracy that we have right now, and one of us was a prophet, and we prayed the same prayer. It would be like God saying, oh, listen, I know exactly what's going on down there in America. I, I read this stuff about San Francisco and New York and Orlando and Elton John and all these people. You know, I mean, I, I've read that too, um, and I'm going to do something about it. I've decided to do something about it. I'm raising up Osama bin Laden and Al-Qaeda to come in to wipe you out. And we're saying... I mean, you, you would, your breath would be taken away. You would hardly know what to say. Not that you would be so any more scared of Osama bin Laden and Al-Qaeda as you would anybody else. It's just like, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. They're evil. I mean, I know we're evil, but, but they're a whole lot more evil than we are. How could you raise them up? That's what's going on here. So God answers Habakkuk. He says, I'm raising up the Chaldeans to judge Israel. Not exactly what Habakkuk expected. But the message here is that God's sovereign, He's, as well as being righteous, and he can and sometimes does use the evil of another people to judge his own people. So that's what's happening here. By the time we get to verse 12, I really almost picture Habakkuk as being out of breath and can't hardly speak. But he does say, in uh, beginning in verse 12, he responds and says, let me paraphrase, whoa, <laughs> Art thou not from everlasting, O God, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We will not die. Thou hast appointed them to judge, and thou, O Rock, or that could be my protector, that you, the one who protects us, has established them to correct us. Your eyes are too pure to approve evil, and you can't look on wickedness with favor. Why do you look with favor on those who deal treacherously? Why are you silent when the wicked swallow up those more righteous than they. You know what he's saying? It's, it's kind of a relative thing. But he's saying, some of your translations may read a little different, more differently. They're those who are uh, we're more relatively righteous than they are. It's like, I know we were bad. and Because and I, I remember, I'm the one that brought it up. Yeah, I, I prayed about this, but if I could say, you got to be kidding me, Lord. And it, he is saying, sir. He's not, he's not being flippant with the Lord at all, but it's like, Lord, you got to be kidding me. You're going to raise up them to, to curse us? I mean, I could see us getting wiped out, but by them? So he speaks all the way through chapter 2, verse 1. And in verse 1, he finally ends up saying, I'll stand on my guard post and station myself on the rampart. I'll keep watch to see what he will speak to me and how I may reply, reply when I'm reproved. That sounds a lot like Job, doesn't it? As soon as God went in and corrected... Habakkuk, of course, it didn't take Habakkuk all those chapters to get corrected. And just a short part, and Habakkuk says, hard for me to believe what I'm hearing, but you're Lord and you're God and I'm not, and so I'm going to sit right here, and I'm going to watch what it is you do. And even though he didn't totally understand it. So Habakkuk believes what's going on, but at this point, he doesn't understand what's going on. A, a very key lesson in the book of Habakkuk, by the way. Do you have to, do you personally have to understand everything God's doing before you're going to go along with it. Uh, uh, yeah. Be careful with that one. Uh, because if you do, you're might, uh, you might not be as happy as you think that you should be. So in the first chapter through chapter 2, verse 1, Habakkuk's questions about the presence of evil in Israel challenges God's tolerance for and the use of evil. So we're going to see how God uses one evil people to conquer another one. And Habakkuk's very clear. The Babylonians were worse than, even on their worst day, the Babylonians were worse than the people in Israel, or southern kingdom, even though they were bad. 
That's what you got to keep in mind. You just got to realize Habakkuk is in theological shock right now. That's what's going on in this passage. Now, in verses 2 through 20, God's affirmation of judgment condemns those who are arrogant and vindicates those who trust God. Now, here's where we're going to get to the to Habakkuk 2.4. That's the reason we're here. Then the Lord answered me and said, Record the vision and inscribe it on tablets, that the one who reads it may run. For the vision is yet for the appointed time. It hastens toward the goal, and it will not fail. So it's just going to happen. Write it down, count on it, because it's going to happen. Though it tarries, wait for it, for it will certainly come and will not delay. Now, Habakkuk 2.4. Behold, look, watch, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him, but the righteous will live by his faith. Same interpretive problem that we have in the translations of the New Testament. Before we go any further, let me, let me just say, I didn't write the Hebrew on here, but in, in the Hebrew it would be the same exact structure. Uh, the, the Hebrew subject is the one who is righteous by means of faith. Word could also mean faithfulness, but, but it, taken uh, in context, it's faith. will live. The one who is righteous by faith will live. It's exactly the same. The New Testament writers didn't change up the order. They took it right straight from the Hebrew and then probably from the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew. But the righteous will live by faith, or the one who is righteous by faith will live. Furthermore, wine betrays the haughty man, so that he does not stay at home. He enlarges his appetite or his lusts like Sheol, and his, it is like death. He is never satisfied. He also gathers himself to all the nations and collects to himself all the people. So God responds that I'm holy, I'm going to judge, let all the earth be silent before him. And the message of verses 2 through 20 is this, that God is sovereign. He can do and has the right to do whatever he desires to do with his creatures. But what he's telling us in verses 4 and 5 particularly is that the righteous, those who are righteous by faith are going to live. Now, here's part of the interpretive problem and part of the problem with sense here. It's not so much this phrase, those who are righteous by faith or those who are justified by faith. It's what does this phrase mean? What does it mean that they're going to live? Because in the history of the world, there have been plenty of people who are believers walking in fellowship with God worldwide that have not lived in the sense of continuing here on earth. That's a reality. I mean, if, if you don't believe that, subscribe to Voice of the Martyrs or, or uh, some other publication. You'll see people dying all over the world, even right now. And if, you, if that's not good enough, then read Fox's Book of Martyrs, and you'll see all the people that died early in the church that were definitely righteous people. This is not a promise. I wish it was. I, I really do. This is not a promise, though, Let's say, for example, in the United States, we can continue to go down and down and down into degeneracy. The, the Lord wipes us out, but yet everybody's dropped dead except for us. Now, I wish that was a promise. But there is a, there's a possibility that we would be swept away in the overflow. However, this is what you can count on. And that is that we will live eternally in heaven no matter what happens here on earth. The people in Judah would live on 
one way or the other. You see, what Habakkuk is saying is that if you're justified through faith, by faith, you can't lose. You can't lose. Isn't that a wonderful, wonderful application? You're either going to live on here, or God's going to take you out and you're going to live on forever in eternity. And if eternity is really that good, if heaven is really that wonderful and beautiful and there's no more sorrow, if, there, if that's really true, that there's no more sorrow, no more pain, no more tears, the old death, uh, no more death, the old things have passed away, if it's really paradise, if it really looks like Beyondberg, Switzerland, which I bet it does, if it really looks like that, then we ought to be okay with that. Either I live here or I live there, but either way, I live. Unfortunately, though, for the one that the text here calls the haughty one, or the proud one, or the one that is not justified through faith, he is lost through his pride. It would be the parallel in that passage. He doesn't have this to look forward to. That's a word for will live, by the way. I'm sorry. See, for one who hasn't trusted Jesus Christ for eternal life, when the, when the trouble comes... You know, the tragedy is you lose twice. We can't lose as those who are justified by faith. We can't. What's the worst that could happen to us? They shoot us and we go to heaven. Or, or hey, no, the worst that can happen to us is probably they torture us for a while and then we go to heaven. That, that would be bad. And I'm not, I'm not making light of that. I don't want to get tortured. I really don't. I mean, some of the things that believers have gone through uh, are, are terrible. But at the end of it, Martin Burnham went to heaven after that. His wife lived. She lived on here. That's a blessing for her. She got to go back and take care of her kids, and Martin went to heaven, and that's a blessing for him. We cannot lose as believers, but you know what? As an unbeliever, you can't win. That's what Habakkuk is saying. That's the context of Habakkuk. As a believer, you can't lose. And by believer, I mean one who is justified by faith, one who has received God's righteousness by faith. As a believer, you can't lose. And as a proud, haughty unbeliever, you cannot win. You're going to die here, and you're going to suffer forever. Now, that's not a very good uh, deal for them. And for the life of me, I'm just like you. For the life of me, I can't understand why people would ever turn that down. I, uh, I cannot understand why people would ever turn that down. But that's what happens. So the, the righteous or those who are justified by faith are going to live. Now, let me just summarize the next portions. In chapter 3, verses 1 through 19, Habakkuk then acknowledges that God has a right to do what he's doing, and he trusts him for deliverance. And again, this deliverance may be temporal. We don't know. I don't know what happened to Habakkuk. never tells us. I do know that some righteous people in Israel survived that attack by the Babylonians. Remember Daniel? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So we know that there was at least a few that made it through. But we don't know if Habakkuk lived through it or he lived through it. <laughs> he passed through death's doors and still lived. That's the beauty of this. That's why you can look at the things that are going on around you and not take it flippantly, not take it casually. It should break your heart. Because the way God looks at things ought to be the way that we look at things. And if God's anthropomorphically speaking. If God's heart is broken over the sin and degeneracy of the United States, so should ours.
But we don't have to fret at night as those who have no hope, to borrow a phrase from another context. Because we have the hope. At the end of the day, at the end of our lives here, we're going to end up being in heaven. Because we have been justified by faith. And again, if it's that great, why are we so afraid to get there? I'm not saying we should charge out in front of a train and say, let me get there tomorrow. That'd be, that would be wrong. That would be taking everything into your own hands. But we, we have a fear of death. The only thing that comes close, I understand, according to a study in the University of North Carolina, their psychology department's public speaking. It's the only thing that comes close to death as far as people's fear. That's true. Second, only to death. And some people say, I'm more afraid of that than dying. Well, they're not. <laughs> Put a gun to their head and they'll, they'll, they'll rattle off Lincoln's Gettysburg address real quick. <laughs> in front of 50,000 people, if that's what it takes. But they say they are. But, but God's going to deliver us either way. That's the context. Now, the message of the last chapter then is God in justice will judge and in grace will deliver. So the believer cannot lose. The one who is not a believer cannot win. So the three sections of this chapter, roughly corresponding to the three chapters with one verse exception. First, Habakkuk's questions about the presence of evil in Israel challenges God's tolerance for and the use of evil. He just cannot believe what God's doing. But in in chapter 2, verses 2 through 20, God's affirmation of judgment condemns those who are arrogant and vindicates those who trust God. You don't have to worry about slipping through the cracks. God knows that you are on his side. He's not going to forget. And finally, Habakkuk's praise of God rests in his judgment as seen in the past while pleading for mercy. In the last three minutes, let's turn back over to Romans and let's see now. Now that you've seen the context there, now maybe we can see at least initially, and then we'll pick it back up next time, Why Martin Luther, as he was reading through this, said, wow, this is is not what I've held for a long time. You see, before this, Martin Luther held, just like many other people, not everybody, but many people of his day, that salvation was by grace through faith plus works. And when he read this verse, he began to think, maybe I've been wrong about that. Aren't you glad Luther had the objectivity to say, maybe I was wrong? You know what he did? Once he did it, he, he didn't stand up, and the Protestant Reformation didn't begin in 1515. Actually, it was 1517, October 31st, that he nailed the 95 Theses to the door and really, and really opened up the way for the, uh, for the whole event. It, it actually occurred slowly over a period of time. But the first thing he did, he went to one of his uh, professors, one of his fellow professors, and said, what do you think about this? Am I, am I reading this wrong? And they said, Brother Martin, yeah, I think you're reading it wrong. And be very careful. Be very careful how you interpret that because you're going against the doctrines of the church. Luther said, and I paraphrase, well, that's not what I'm after. I'm not after the doctrines of the church. I'm after what the Word of God says here. And you're starting to see the kind of personality that Luther had, and you see why he used him. Instead of, say, like John Calvin. John Calvin was probably a lot smarter than Martin Luther. In in terms of intellect, Calvin was way up there. In terms of being a bulldog for God, uh, Martin Luther was the one. Martin Luther could cuss with the best of them. Martin Luther could fight with the best of them. As a matter of fact, at the Marburg debates some years later, when Zwingli said something that Luther didn't particularly care for, it went into the table, Luther got up, went around, and had every intention of punching Zwingli out at, that, at those debates. The only reason it didn't happen, I talked to a Lutheran scholar a couple of years ago that had studied it extensively. 
The only reason it didn't happen is the people that were there at the table with him got in between them, held Luther off, and say, Martin, what are you doing? <laughs> you know, this, don't punch. I mean, Zwingli was a scholar. He was, you know, just a, a bookworm, and Luther was just going to take him out. That's the kind of personality that he has. So when he read this verse, and when the people started saying, well, don't say anything about it, Martin. Luther, just, just kind of be calm. Be cool about this. He said, I don't think so. And he took it further. Martin Luther was the kind of guy that made everybody nervous. But he was also the kind of guy that God needed at the moment. If Martin Luther was here today, you probably wouldn't call him as the pastor of your church. He would be much too gruff for you. But he was the one that God called to do that job at that time. So when he reads this, he says, Paul is saying, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Remember, this is Paul is saying, and we'll discuss this in the context next time, Paul was telling him how bad he wanted to come there, okay, to come to Rome. So he's saying, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It, meaning the gospel, is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to everyone who has faith. And there's no works there. Both to the first to the Jew and also to the Greek. By the way, in case you're not able to make it back, don't mistake, this is not a prescription. This is not saying that the gospel was supposed to be taken to the Jew first and then had to be taken to the Greek second. This is a description of what actually happened. If you go through the book of Acts, what Paul is, descri- is describing, that it went to the Jew first and then to the Greek. For in it, meaning the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed or manifested from faith to faith, and that will take us some time to discuss that phrase, as it is written, but the one justified by faith shall live. Well, there you have a a very um, uh, technical, if you will allow me that word, a technical study that we uh, had to look at, though, before we'll be able to really fully appreciate what's going on in this passage. I hope now that you understand Habakkuk a little bit better, and I hope you understand what Habakkuk was talking about and why Paul uses that here to validate his point that salvation, justification is by grace through faith, works aren't involved in it.